This message comes from NPR sponsor, Acorn TV. Acorn TV is brilliant television told brilliantly. From charmingly cozy mysteries to daringly dark dramas. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. Acorn TV. Brilliant. Just a quick heads up, y'all. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Shireen Marisol Maraji. I'm Gene Demby. And this is Code Switch. From NPR. And if y'all don't know this yet, it is time for me to tell you that I am stepping away from co-hosting and senior producing Code Switch. I've been doing this for <laughs> for five years now, a little over five years now. And it's not because I don't love Eugene and I don't love what I do because this has been the honor of my life. Um, and I'm not going away forever, people. Code Switch is going to be a home for my journalism. I've been obsessed with questions of racial identity and belonging and language loss since I can remember. Obsessed. I'm still in denial about all this. Still in denial. Well, right now, let me let me let me make it more real for you. Right now, I'm talking to you from a closet in Cambridge, where I'm doing a journalism fellowship, the Neiman Journalism Fellowship. Look at the come up, though. You were in a closet <laughs> in, in L.A. Now you're a closet at Harvard. Is that a come up? I don't know. I miss L.A. Um, We're here, you know, a bunch of us thinking big thoughts about the future of the industry, um, how to make it more equitable. And then from here, I go back home. I'm headed back to the Bay where I started a new job, not at San Francisco State, which was my alma mater, but at UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism. So fancy. Where I'm going to be teaching journalism. And Gene, in preparation, I've really been trying to go back, put myself in the early years of my journalism career back in their shoes, you know, mm-hmm. I was a new reporter once. What do I wish I knew? What were the formative moments of my career? And I just keep turning over and turning over this one event that I covered that really shaped me as a journalist. And okay. it made such an impact on me as a human being. So... I'm taking Eugene and our listeners back in time, 20 years ago, to the summer of 2001. Midriffs and low-rise bootleg jeans are in, mm-hmm. very in. Came souls as tops. Oh, my God. An emerging talent named Alicia Keys was all over the radio. you. I know that this is helping jog your memory, Gene. It is hard to overstate how omnipresent, how ubiquitous that song was. Like, (laughs) that song was on the radio or TV every 30 minutes, it seemed like. And I remember that summer very clearly because my beloved Philadelphia 76ers were in the NBA Finals. We lost, but that's neither here nor there. (laughs) We were still in the very early months of the George W. Bush administration. I was interning. And the biggest news story that summer I remember this very clearly, was a scandal about the disappearance of Chandra Levy, this congressional intern in Washington, D.C., who was having an affair with a representative named Gary Condit. And so there was this whole From big, California. That's right, from, from California. Mm-hmm. That was like the biggest story in the news, yeah. That was and summer of there was another yeah. big news event happening, huge actually, that of course the media at the time wasn't paying that much attention to. Uh, this groundswell of humanity 
converging on South Africa to talk about racism. The World Conference on Racism began this morning in Durban, South Africa. Thousands of delegates from more than 150 countries have traveled to that Indian Ocean port to attend the eight-day meeting. Do you remember that conference, Gene? That big event? I vaguely remember that there was this thing and there was a controversy over the Israel-Palestine question. Exactly. That's the only thing I remember about it. Yes. Well, we're going to listen to the late Kofi Annan from Ghana. He was the Secretary General of the United Nations at the time. Tell us what the World Conference Against Racism, Racial Discrimination, Xenophobia, and Related Intolerance was all about. What were the intentions? Our aim must be to banish from this new century the hatred and prejudice that have disfigured previous centuries. So very lofty goals here. Mm -hmm. To banish from this new century the hatred and prejudice that have disfigured previous ones. I went right after my 24th birthday to Durban, South Africa to cover it. I had business cards made. (laughs) They said, Shireen Marisol Miraji, in all caps, underneath, independent journalist. Very official. I had no clue what I was doing. I need, (laughs) before you leave us, I need one of these cards. If you still have one. I do. Probably all yellowed and frayed on the edges, (laughs) but I I want one. It actually is Did you save any of your old stories from that that period? I mean, I didn't. How do you save things from that time period? It's like this weird (laughs) black hole on the internet. Exactly. (laughs) Um, But I knew, I remembered that Latino USA played one of my stories while I was out there. Shout out to Latino USA. Um, mm-hmm. And our producer, Christina Kala, actually found it. And that story that I did, you may be surprised by this. It was about a group of young Puerto Ricans who mm-hmm. went to Durban, South Africa, to call attention to the U.S. Navy's decades-long occupation of this little place called Vieques, Puerto Rico. Which, I don't know if people know this, Serene, but... Vieques is the island that your your Puerto Rican family is from. That's true. And the Navy used large parts of Vieques as a bombing range for decades. Mm -hmm. So you have Puerto Rican members of this youth delegation coming to South Africa to tell the world what was happening on this tiny island was the direct result of two gigantic and interconnected issues, colonialism and racism. The Youth Commission unanimously agreed that the demilitarization of Vieques be included on the official youth declaration to the United Nations. Marin Nieves Alba. Vieques is a little island with 9,400 inhabitants. Most people didn't know what Vieques was. In fact, most people didn't know what Puerto Rico was. Whatever the impact of the youth declaration is, the fact that Vieques is now in the consciousness of people all over the world is like an important first step towards something. On September 2, 2001, the official youth declaration was given to the UN Commissioner of Human Rights, Mary Robinson. Youth called for universal health care regardless of race and the implementation of anti-racist curricula beginning in grade school. For Latino USA, I'm Shireen Marisol Miraji in Durban, South Africa. So, first... Yes. Uh-huh. That sounds just like you and also does not sound like you at all. <laughs> and also, I'm trying to sound like Alicia Keys. Yes, there's something going on there. I was about to clown yes. you because you have this spoken word cadence happening. You know what I mean? <laughs> I was about to, to clown you. But it's a trip that you end that story talking about, you know, this call to implement anti-racist curricula starting elementary school, considering yep. obviously that's the thing that a lot of people are talking about 
right now. And of course, you know, we just talked about the whole anti-critical race theory backlash, you know, mm-hmm. from the right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's about sort of thinking through these big issues of race and racism and history and how that's taught. So, yeah. A lot of stuff has changed, like your voice, <laughs> and a lot of stuff has not. And I've had so much deja vu, especially this past year and a half. I feel like this time that we found ourselves in, this most recent racial reckoning, mm-hmm. has just reminded me so much of what the racial justice activists I was covering 20 years ago were talking about. And oh, for so. me, that fight, it really culminated in this global event where— Thousands of people came together from around the world to talk about how to end racism. And you know, I'm not one for nostalgia, but mm-hmm. I cannot stop thinking about the World Conference Against Racism in Durban, South Africa, and how the world has changed and how I've changed. There she is. Hi. You haven't changed, like, not for a day. <laughs> you look exactly the same. My God. Oh, Jamil. I'm so happy to see you. I'm so happy to see you. All right. Who is that we just heard? Who are you now? 20 years since I met you. Who am I now? I'm Jamil Kolantandikai Kubega, 42 years old. I'm a filmmaker and I live in South Africa, Johannesburg, to be precise. Jamil is a pretty famous director in South Africa these days, but... When I met him, he was 22 years old, he was broke, and he was trying to be a filmmaker. Right. <laughs> and let's just go back to 2001. This was a period of huge technological change. Everything, everything was going digital at this time. Mm-hmm. And yep. Jamil was a part of this wave of, you know, self-taught filmmakers. It was a digital filmmaking revolution. And in 2001, the Indie Media Center was looking for young upstarts like him who knew the tech to cover the World Conference Against Racism. And he was like, sign me up. It was so fiery and there were so many angry groups who wanted to be represented. That I was like, hmm, this is going to be a hell of a party. I have to go. (laughs) So I hopped on the bus and I went to Durban. And a couple of days before the official start of the event, after I flew from San Francisco to China, then again to Malaysia, where there was a 14-hour layover. That was <laughs> and, the quickest way? What? No, it was, the, I think it was the cheapest way, but man, my ticket was expensive, so I don't even know. Oh my God. Then I landed in Johannesburg, and then it was another seven-hour drive on the other side of the road to Durban. Anyway, not long after I get there, I realize my audio equipment doesn't work for whatever reason, and a disheveled, totally frustrated me walks into the Indie Media Center office needing help, and there was Jamil. You weren't interested in video. You had audio issues. I remember that. <laughs> so that, that has not changed. No, audio years. first, audio forever. Um, And this is a story for a different time, and I don't know if you can tell um, by our banter, but the second I met Jamil, Gene, I was, oh, I was in love. (laughs) (laughs) This is what I know about you. You like the boys, the boys like you. I was just picking up on that. very special. (laughs) I I was so in love that... Fidel Castro shows up at this conference and I was studying the Cuban revolution as a Raza studies major at San Francisco State at the time and I went but I cannot recall any of it 
Hey, do you remember what Fidel said in his speech? No, I don't. I think I was just excited by by, by the environment. I was so in in love and infatuated with you that I don't remember. Likewise. <laughs> oh, doing heart eyes. Oh. So warning, warning, Gene, warning, listeners. Uh, my my nostalgia for this time is perhaps enhanced by love. That kind of all-encompassing love that only 20-somethings have time for. Appreciate that disclaimer. <laughs> but in all seriousness, this this conference, this event, it opened my eyes to so much as a young journalist who was interested, really obsessed with race and identity. It was overwhelming, really. You know, thousands of people walking around this convention center, every language you can imagine in the air. You know, these are the first time I'm hearing conversations about indigenous rights and sovereignty. Mm-hmm. I learned about the plight of the Roma people. The Roma, I guess explain the story coming for the Roma people. The Roma trace their roots back to India. They're Europe's largest minority group. They've been discriminated against for hundreds of years. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and this is where I first was introduced to another group that's been discriminated against for a couple thousand years. The Dalits. Mm. Walking around, you met people from all over the place and they taught you so much. Um, I remember learning so much about the Indian caste system and how the caste system works. I didn't understand those politics at all. So people's young minds were being blown wide open, including Rosa Clementes. She was one of those New Yorican activists I interviewed for that Latino USA story, and she's still an activist today. Mm -hmm. She's also an academic. She studies Afro-Latinx identity. And Rosa remembers how powerful it was to be at the World Conference Against Racism. You know, to see Colombians, Mexicans, Dominicans, Puerto Ricans, like, who were like, yeah, we're Black, was moving. So Rosa was in days of meetings in South Africa with hundreds of other young people drafting their version of the proposal to fight racism. And reparations mm-hmm. for the transatlantic slave trade played a central role in those discussions. And not just for the descendants of people enslaved in the United States, but in Latin America, in Brazil, you know, all over the Caribbean. Yeah, because most people forget that most of the 12 million Africans brought to the Americas during the transatlantic slave trade, they didn't end up in the United States. They actually ended up in South America and the Caribbean. And again... I must remind everyone, this is a conversation that's happening 20 years ago. Everyone in that room had a lineage of family and a nation that all deserved reparations for this crime against humanity. Rosa told me she thinks about that conference all the time, Jean, and I have to say it felt good to know that it was just as memorable for her as it was for me. This message comes from NPR sponsor Squarespace. Kickstart or update written content on any website, product description, or email with Squarespace AI, generating instant, personalized results that know and show your brand identity. Explain what your site is about, choose your tone, and enter what you need to get short or long-form text. No matter the placement, Squarespace AI makes it easier to go live, stand out, and succeed online. Use code CODESWITCH to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. 
if learning and love and being at the forefront of this huge moment of technological change that was disrupting journalism and it was disrupting all of media, if all that wasn't enough to make this remarkable to my 24-year-old self, Gene, mm-hmm. my very favorite hip-hop artists were also in South Africa Whoa. at the same time. That's bananas. They were there for this conference? They were there in conjunction with the conference. They were there for their own tour. Okay. It was called the Black August Tour. Rosa Clemente actually helped organize it, too. She was she was doing double okay. duty in South Africa. Uh, it was supposed to be a concert headlined by Lauren Hill, who was huge at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for reasons involving her not showing up to performances, that stopped being the case. We talking about things not changing. I mean, <laughs> that has yes. not changed at all. But, Gene, your favorite MC was there, Black Thought yes. from Woo-hoo. The Roots. There was Jeru the Damager, Dead Prez, Talib Kweli, and Boots Riley from The Coop. I think I actually only got to go because Lauren Hill didn't go. So as you can imagine, the Black August tour went from filling soccer stadiums to, you know, more modest venues. And that totally worked out for me because I got to see one of the best hip-hop shows of my life. I could almost reach out and touch these artists, feel the sweat flying off them as they were performing. And what I loved is that they came with a message. You know, they were talking about Mm Pan-Africanism, ending mass incarceration and police brutality, freeing political prisoners, in Boots' case, dismantling capitalism because that's been his M.O. forever. And they held this big press event about their tour at the World Conference Against Racism. Yeah, I mean, you know, we were there at that conference for only a few hours. We flew from Johannesburg to Durban just that day. And that day did not go the way he expected. Here's Jamil again. These were the conscious rappers of the time. And um, they came in, I remember they, a tent was put up for them to, to basically have a press conference about why they're here. And it just turned on them. A crowd converged into this tent. Wait, 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 wait. The crowd turned on all these rappers? Like what? What happened? There was a healthy amount of calling out going on, (laughs) or -hmm. or as some people say now, calling in going on at the conference. But, you know, face-to-face, not on Twitter, because that didn't exist at the time. And a bunch of young Black South Africans came to that event, and they spoke their minds. They were yelling things like, your shows are too expensive. Most of us can't afford to come. You know, you talk Mm. about poverty, but you don't even know what poverty looks like. You're from a rich country. You wear brand name clothes. You wear fancy sunglasses. Look at you. You claim you're down with Pan-Africanism, but you've only been to the continent, what, once? Maybe twice? It was was a very intense (laughs) situation to be in, to to witness. All these rappers are about cultural imperialism and capitalism and all this stuff out there. But they're also, like, rappers from the United States, right? Like, they're... Like, they're centering, like, American perspectives in all these ways. And it wasn't just the artists that were getting uh, fired upon. (laughs) It was everyone. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rosa Clemente, who was one of the concert organizers, you know, she was getting called in, too. All right, here we go. And at one point, somebody looked at me and was like, 
and you, what, you're white girl. Why are you here? And I was like, nah, homie, I'm Puerto Rican. And I showed him my tattoo of the Puerto Rican flag in the continent. I was like, no, I understand. I understand our privilege. Tell me what we are doing wrong. Rosa said they talked for a really long time and, you know, had a conversation that we're having right now, a conversation about light skin privilege, um, class privilege, country of origin privilege. People were debating all of that in the hallways and in the meeting rooms and on the cricket field across the street. And, you know, to put all this into more context the memories of apartheid are still fresh. It, it hasn't even yeah. been a decade since the struggle to bring it down. So the choice to have this conference in South Africa, that seems very intentional. Oh, it was. South Africa was picked by the United Nations to hold this conference um, in recognition of the sacrifice and the pain mm. and the loss, everything it took to end apartheid. Boots told me he remembers someone at that press event say, My parents were tortured and killed by the police for being involved in the struggle. What do you have to tell me? Somebody, maybe it was J. Rue, was saying something like, Look, I live in Brooklyn. We got the same struggles, blah, blah, blah. And I understand where he was coming from was more like a same struggle, same fight. And that just enraged the audience, the only thing that stopped it was the quick thinking of M1 from Dead Prez, who quickly wrote on a big piece of cardboard, fuck the United States, and raised it up. I should start by saying that the United States never truly supported the holding of this conference. That's Craig Keel. He was the U.S. Consul General in Durban, South Africa in 2001. Before he went into the Foreign Service, Gene, uh, you know, a little bio of him. He was an actor in New York City off off. Broadway, <laughs> he told me. Um, and, and before that, he was protesting the Vietnam War. When I joined the Foreign Service, I told the security person who interviewed me that I had this FBI f- uh, file, about 52 pages. And I said, is that a problem? And he said, look, if we, if we rejected everyone who protested the Vietnam War, we wouldn't have anyone in the Foreign Service. 18 years after he landed his first job in the Foreign Service, he is in Durban, and naturally, he's involved with preparations for the conference. He attends most of the U.N. preparatory meetings where, like he said, the United States government was not on board. What does that mean that the U.S. government like wasn't aboard that he said the U.S. never truly supported the holding of this conference? So we're going to get into some diplomat speak here, but um, he said the U.S. government felt that there was already international law that protected groups against discrimination, like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. But even more important as far as legality is concerned is the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which is, in fact, a treaty ratified by countries after it was adopted by the UN. And the United States is a party 
to that treaty. And that treaty, and as, as well as the Universal Declaration, essentially oblige countries not to discriminate. So, okay, the U.S. government, and this was the George W. Bush administration at the time. Yeah. They're saying, this is a waste of our time because we already have international laws that address racism. Yeah. Craig also added that the U.S. wasn't down with two very specific issues that were tops on the agenda. Reparations for slavery and other discrimination and the question of Zionism as racism. Zionism had been declared to be racism by the UN General Assembly in the mid-70s. And in 1991, the U.S. delegation succeeded in getting that repealed. U.S. delegation in Israel. Here I am, 2021. I'm in the middle of my journalism career. It's 20 years after covering this global conference. And these are issues that we're still talking about. Reparations for slavery, Palestinian sovereignty. And as Craig put it, you know, the question of Zionism as racism. Yeah, like all those things have been in the news this summer, right? Yeah. So what did the United States government end up doing if they were so mad about You know what I mean? This whole conference and how this was all happening. They snubbed the conference in a way. Uh, They sent a lower level delegation. They didn't send the brass. Um, There was this strong, strong expectation that the Secretary of State would show up. So at the time, we're talking about Colin Powell. You you know your politics, even though you were quite young at that time. Good on you, (laughs) Gene. Colin Powell was the first black Secretary of State, and he didn't show up to represent the United States, which, you know— made a lot of people mad. And Craig Keel told me it made African leaders in particular very upset. Um, They were not pleased. And Craig said neither was he. I was secretly hoping that Colin Powell would come. I didn't have any way to express that other than to, you know, say it privately to other members of the U.S. delegation. Hmm. So... I'm really curious as to what Colin Powell's calculation was then. I'm curious about what Me he would say too. about all this today. Yes. Well, we reached out mm-hmm. to him. We 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 asked okay. him for an interview, and we were told that he didn't have time to talk to us about this. So. Hmm. so listening to this, it makes even more sense, you know, that a sign saying, fuck the United States, <laughs> might calm down, might win over yeah. an angry crowd at this conference. Yeah. Like, Because people were furious with the United States. There was a lot of anti-American sentiment in the air. I remember feeling like I had to explain that, you know, my father's from Iran. My mom is Puerto Rican. (laughs) Yes, I'm American. It's complicated. (laughs) I just just felt like I wanted to distance myself from my Americanness the whole time I was there. So people were were side-eyeing you. They were, you know, you were feeling that friction because you were American. Oh, yeah. I think that everybody at the conference who was American felt that way or felt like they had to explain themselves in some way. Right. And Craig told me he understood so much of the frustration and where it was coming from, especially over the Colin Powell, you know, not showing up situation. Mm -hmm. But on the topic of Israel, Craig said he didn't think it was fair that one country was being singled out for behavior that so many other nations that were there also engage in. It ended up, by the way, that the United States and the Israeli delegations left the conference before it was over. 
days before, in fact. The United States no longer is represented at the World Conference Against Racism in Durban, South Africa. The mid-level U.S. delegation left in protest over attempts to portray Israel as a racist state. The conference itself wrapped five days later on September 8th. Um, And, you know, there's this official document that comes out of it, and it's full of all this convoluted-sounding diplomat ease mm. or legal ease. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there was nothing in it that like mandates reparations for slavery, for example, but it urges member states to come up with ways, quote, for victims to seek redress for racism. Mm. Um, there's no references to Zionism as racism or Israel as a racist state. The document instead calls upon member states to, quote, recognize the need to counter anti-Semitism anti-Arabism and Islamophobia worldwide and urges all states to take effective measures to prevent the emergence of movements based on racism and discriminatory ideas concerning these communities. Mm. You know, all that to say, that was my very first contact at 24 with terms like anti-Arabism and Islamophobia. You know, Islamophobia is something we hear all the time now, but... yeah. Anti-Arabism, I don't think we've ever used that on yeah, Code Switch before. First time I've ever heard it. Um, maybe because Islamophobia might have actually subsumed it, like because Islamophobia, official and sort of like person to person, is directed at all sorts of people who are just assumed to be Muslim, right? That's Arabs, mm-hmm. people of Middle Eastern, North African descent, the South Asians, right? Like maybe Islamophobia just covers it all. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Like I said, I'm this 24-year-old. I'm soaking up so much. I'm making all of these connections between racism here in the United States and racism abroad. It was such a transformative experience. And it felt like, and, and granted, I'm setting aside the boring legalese of that declaration, it really did feel like change was on its way. Three days after the conference was over, Rosa Clemente was on her way home from South Africa to New York City. We were in the air and saw that first plane hit the tower. That's when we were starting to descend, and the pilot was like, I need everybody to stay calm. This message comes from NPR sponsor Grammarly. Change the way you write with Grammarly Go, offering personalized generative AI communication assistance. Grammarly Go helps you ideate, compose, rewrite, and reply thoughtfully. Go to Grammarly.com slash go. These days, news comes at you fast. But the truth? Getting there takes time. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? 
Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. The Embedded Podcast brings you eye-opening reporting. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Immersive journalism. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Personal stories. I was scared. Like, I can't protect you. We are NPR's home for documentary storytelling. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. Rosa Clemente, you all heard her voice right before the break. Just to remind you, she was a youth delegate at the conference. She helped organize the Black August hip-hop tour. So, as you can imagine, as much as these events were energizing and amazing, they were also incredibly exhausting. And Rosa was going to stay longer in South Africa, but when the conference wrapped, just like a couple days after it wrapped, she was like, I got to go home. So she booked herself an earlier flight out of South Africa that was scheduled to land at JFK Airport on the morning of September 11th. We were in the air and saw that first plane hit the tower. That's when we were starting to descend. And the pilot was like, I need everybody to stay calm, you know, of what you just saw. People just were gasped and like, what is happening? Then we're like, are we landing? What's going on? Like, And when we landed, it was mass chaos at the airport. And I just remember, I guess I had a cell phone. And my dad was like, I'm here. I'm not parking the car. Come out right now. Leave your luggage. Shireen... Where were you on September 11th? I was still in South Africa. Huh. I think my flight was scheduled to leave maybe on the 12th, but obviously that that did not happen. Right, because the U.S. government like, grounded all flights like yep. in the, across the country, yeah. So I was in Johannesburg. I had gone from Durban to Johannesburg at that point. I was with Jamil at the time. We were in a corner store, some sort of convenience store, and I remember the radio being on in the store really loud, and it was playing President Bush's press conference that mm. he had, like, right after the event. And I'm just, like, frozen in the aisle listening. I have spoken to the vice president, to the governor of New York, to the director of the FBI, and I've ordered that the full resources of the federal government go to help the victims and their families and, the, and to conduct a full-scale investigation to hunt down and to find those folks who committed this act. Terrorism against our nation will not stand. And now if you join me in a moment of silence. I felt numb. Hmm. I remember people around me saying some version of, the chickens had come home to roost mm-hmm. and, you know, the U.S. got what it deserved. Mm. I remember hearing that. And I honestly, I, I did not know how to think or how to feel in that moment. Yeah. What about you? Where were you? I was um, in Long Island at Hofstra University where I was an undergrad. Mm-hmm. One of the 
big salient things I remember about that day was that it was perfect. It was breezy. There wasn't a cloud in the sky. And so from the top floor of my dorm building, you could see Manhattan. So we were watching this giant plume of smoke. Um, and my friend Alyssa and I were watching. We just watched it all unfold. Peter Jennings was like narrating as like all the stuff was happening. Mm-hmm. And we were, there were so many people up on the top floor watching the communal t- television. Um, and every, you know, couple hours you were a fighter jet fly over campus because we were that close to, 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 to Manhattan. It was just a very surreal mm-hmm. experience. Yeah. And for me, after the 9-11 news, the World Conference Against Racism felt surreal. It mm. felt it felt like it was something I made up. It felt like a dream. Frankly, when the conference was over and then 911 happened, I never looked back. That's Craig Keeligan, the U.S. Consul General in Durban back in 2001. He told me he actually took a sick day because the drama of the conference and all the anti-American sentiment and everything, that stress had really taken a toll on him. So he was home when he learned about the planes hitting the World Trade Center. I didn't, didn't hear one bad word about the United States for weeks um, and flowers. And we had a, um, a condolence book in the lobby of our consulate building. And people came and signed, phone calls and so forth. And then we bombed Afghanistan and things turned on a dime. Within a few days, I got a call from the embassy, the security office, said, you've got to move out of the residence right now. And I said, why? And he said, well, I can't say anything on the phone, but there's been a credible threat against your life. You know, Gene, Lutz Riley told me he also didn't have time to think about South Africa or the Black August tour or the World Conference because after the World Trade Center attack, he was also dealing with death threats, but for very different reasons than Craig Keel. Yes, I remember all this drama over the Coup's album cover from that time. Yeah. We had this album, Party Music, and I wanted to have an album that showed that our music was destroying capitalism. And um, somebody had the idea, like, let's have you there with a, a drum machine and, and the White House blowing up. But I was like, one, the White House blowing up is a cliche. Like, it's used all the time. Two, I don't think the White House is the seat of power. So... You know, we went to Wall Street, and that didn't seem like recognizable to most people. But people recognize the World Trade Center, so we took a picture in front of it where I have a bass tuner, and my DJ, Pam the Funkstress, has conductor's wands. And behind us is the World Trade Center blowing up. Yeah, I almost want to suggest y'all, like, Google the yes. Google the album cover um, for Party Music because it's like so on the nose that you would almost think that yes. they made it after 9-11 like it, it even where the smoke is happening yeah even exactly like where the, the explosions are at the yeah. part of the World Trade Center yeah. that is blowing up in that photo yeah oh man and you know Gene Boots argued to keep that cover <laughs> wow after 
after the attack. He obviously lost that fight, but he was also asked to put out an apology for the cover. And he was like, I'm not going to apologize for it, but I will put out a statement. And he did. And in the statement, he basically said, yes, this is a horrible atrocity, but it also needs to be put in the context of all of the other atrocities that the U.S. government supported, where thousands of innocent people died in places like Central America. And then I also said, with all the flag waving going on, there will be no one allowed in our shows wearing the combination of colors, red, white, and blue. Hmm. To be that outspoken at that time in the climate that we were in was rare. Um, But whenever and wherever Boots could, you know, at his concerts, on TV, in magazine interviews, he was saying that he was against bombing Afghanistan and later the invasion of Iraq. He was against the war. He would say all the time, no war for oil. It's wild that just in the last three or four weeks, the United States is pulling out of that part of this war, right? And so we are still dealing with the ramifications of the decisions to go into Afghanistan and Iraq after 9-11. I stayed behind in South Africa with Jamil for what felt like a couple of weeks, but I have no idea how long I was really there. I spent so much of that time being glued to the television. And we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers. Oh, my God. That looks like a second plane. administration officials say early evidence points to the Saudi-born militant Osama bin Laden. We will find those who did it. We will smoke them out of their holes. We will get them running. And we'll bring them to justice. Everything, everything felt different. It felt heavy, and I just, I wanted to go home. Yeah, it was, it felt so big. Um, I remember, you know, classes were canceled, and it was a whole lot of, like, anxiety about what happened next. And, you know, being in the New York area, there was this, like, valorization of firefighters in the police department, right? Yeah. And also, this other thing that was happening, people arguing against these military invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq. And so it was really interesting to be in New York because... New York kind of felt like this epicenter of it, right? There was all of this yeah. this way that it was like very personal to people. And of course, like New York City eventually created this anti-terrorism task force that became part of the NYPD, which ended up surveilling Muslims and Queens and Brooklyn. It's just, there were global ramifications for all this, but in New York, it felt like there were just very, very local consequences. It sounds like you felt very connected to the event. I felt incredibly disconnected. Mm. I was... 9,000 miles away when it happened. And I live 3,000 miles away uh, across the country in the Bay Area. And I remember getting off the plane, being home and needing to clear my head. And one of the first things I did was take a walk in San Francisco's Dolores Park, which is a beautiful park on a hill. Mm -hmm. And I was so shocked by the graffiti that I saw written on the concrete, on these concrete steps, that I went and I bought a disposable camera because I just had to capture the graffiti. What What did the graffiti say? It said, bomb Arabs in big Oof. black letters. 
like mm. over and over again, bomb Arabs. And I got the film developed um, and it was a terrible photo. It came out blurry, but I've held on to that photo for 20 years because I guess I needed proof that this was the nightmare that I was stepping back into after this dream of an experience. You know, that was my time in South Africa before all this happened. Here's Rosa again. A conference of endless possibilities of a, a reckoning against slavery and white supremacy and all this. And then 9-11. And I just remember that day, like, everything we did is never going to happen. And Jamil. You know, now we live in a quote-unquote woke world. But dare I say, in 2001, at that conference, I felt a real hope for the world. And it, literally, I felt 9-11 just snuffed it all out. Anyone's um, struggle that was being brought to the fore, it just, yeah, it just disappeared. Shereen, you started this whole conversation by saying that you've been thinking a lot about, you know, how the world has changed since this moment. And I mean, the list of ways in which it's changed is almost endless. Like, our privacy and civil liberties have been encroached upon, and, like, that's been codified, especially if you are a Muslim person or a person who was, you know, assumed to be Muslim living in the U.S. Police departments became more militarized because of 9-11. So, so much has changed. But you said this also made you think about how you, personally have changed yeah. in the two decades since you filed that story about the conference. Yeah, and and in some ways, some big ways, I've changed for the better. I am a lot more confident in my abilities. I have a much deeper understanding of how race and racism work, especially here in the United States. Um, I'm really proud of what we've been able to do here on Code Switch and what we've built and what makes us unique is that we talk about race and who's raced in this country um, in a way that goes beyond black and white. We get into these gray areas. And obviously, the black and white dynamic in this country is central. It's foundational. But I think we've created this space where we can come together and talk about how the system of white supremacy affects all of us, but in very different ways. But there was something about that 24-year-old that I want to resurrect. Um, I want to let myself think in broader, more expansive ways, even broader, even more expansive. I want to talk about these issues beyond our borders. The person I was at 24, she had what Zen Buddhists call a beginner's mind. And she was so open and curious about the entire world. And I miss her. I, I, I just, I, I miss her and I really want to find her again. All right, Shireen, one last time. Oh. Let's do the credits. <laughs> I just got emotional. We're going to we're going we're going to make it. We're going to make it. <laughs>
All right, y'all. That is our show. As always, we want to hear from you. You can follow us on Twitter and IG. We're at NPR Code Switch on both of those platforms. Mm-hmm. You can subscribe to the newsletter at npr.org slash codeswitch slash newsletter. You can send us an email, if that's more your jam, at codeswitch at npr.org. And if you haven't followed me yet on Twitter, I'm at Radio Mirage. Do it. This this may be your last opportunity. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, it won't. <laughs> this episode was produced by Christina Kala and me. It was edited by Leah Danella. And a shout out to the rest of the Code Switch familia. Karen Grigsby-Bates, Kumari Devarajan, Jess Kung, Alyssa Jung-Perry. I don't think I'm going to get through this. <laughs> Alyssa Jung-Perry, Natalie Escobar, Sam Yellowhorse-Kessler, Carmen Molina Costa and Steve Drummond. Our art director is L.A. Johnson. I am Shireen Marisol Miraji. You are. <laughs> and you are. I'm Gene Demby. Yes, Gene Demby. Be easy, y'all. Be easy, Shireen. Thank you. Peace. A special thanks to our funder, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, for helping to support this podcast. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I I just started doing research. But the truth is, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world, and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there, and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. With NPR Plus, there's more to hear, like extended interviews with some of the experts we talk to at Planet Money and The Indicator. It's a mistake for economists to only think about economic efficiency when considering policies because you'll actually wind up with a worse outcome. And with NPR Plus, you help keep NPR going. Learn more at plus.npr.org.